I'm going to be reading the entire chapter, Hosea 13. I'd like to read those uh, verses, and I'd like to ask Ariel if he to pray for the ministry of the Word. Hosea 13, beginning at verse 1. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He exalted himself in Israel. But through Baal he did wrong and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves molten images, idols skillfully made from their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. They say of them, let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. Therefore they will be like the morning cloud and like dew which soon disappears, like chaff which is blown away from the threshing floor and like smoke from a chimney. Yet I had been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, and you were not to know any God except me, for there is no Savior besides me. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of drought, and they had their pasture. They became satisfied, and being satisfied, their heart became proud. Therefore, they forgot me. So I will be like a lion to them. Like a leopard, I will lie in wait by the wayside. I will encounter them like a bear robbed of her cubs, and I will tear open their chests. There I will also devour them like a lioness, as a wild beast would tear them. It is your destruction, O Israel, that you are against me, against your help. Where now is your king, that, you may, that he may save you in all your cities and your judges of whom you requested? Give me a king and princes. I gave you a king in my anger and took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is stored up. The pains of childbirth come upon him. He is not a wise son. For it is not the time that he should delay at the opening of the womb. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion will be hidden from my sight. Though he flourishes among the reeds, an east wind will come. The wind of the Lord coming up from the wilderness. And his fountain shall become dry, and his spring will be dried up. It will plunder his treasury of every precious article. Samaria will be held guilty, for she has rebelled against her God. They will fall by the sword. Their little ones will be dashed to pieces, and their pregnant women will be ripped open. Let us pray. Son's name, Jesus Christ, we come before you. 
I'm sure that it was one of my college roommates in the early 70s who coined the phrase, heavy duty. Anytime we were in Bible study and we would read a passage like the one before us, people would kind of just sit in awe and wonder and fear. And he would say, heavy duty. This certainly is a heavy duty passage. And Hosea, by some accounts, between somewhere between 40 to 80 years, handled the heavy dutiness of this message. We're in chapter 13. It's the final prophecy of a doom. But it's not the final word from Hosea. Praise the Lord. Some people say that there are five uh, punishment messages or messages of God's affliction upon the people here. I don't quite see it that way, and yet when we look at the, if you will, the nuts and bolts of this passage, it's almost as if Hosea begins in chapter 13, the first three verses, telling about the sin of Israel, and then God interjects in verse 4. And after verse 9, or verse 8, Hosea wants to interject again, and God continues on. It's as if Hosea goes, I must not speak now. He wanted to make a commentary on some things that God said, and yet he has to let God speak again, and then he gives his commentary. It's not as outlining as I wish this passage was, and there is some controversy in this passage, particularly with verse 14, I will say that up front. And yet there is, what we hear and hear is there is judgment there, there is that in God where he is outlining again, bringing the indictment of their sin, and yet it, it, it's as if, and I, I, I'm not a musician, but you've, you've seen movies, you've heard the soundtrack of the movie, where all through there is this growing refrain, there's the growing sound of that which is the triumph, that which is the glory to come at the end. And this passage, for as awesome and as graphic as it is, that sound of repentance and reconciliation with God, the glory of God's offering reconciliation is here already, and it has its crescendo, its climax in in chapter 14. And, And I think those who take chapter 13, and again, if you read the context, there, there is warrant that all of this is indictment and, and punishment and affliction. And, and yet, I, I think, because we take Scripture and let Scripture interpret Scripture, I, I think we hear in here the voice of God, that coming pronouncement uh, of reconciliation, of turning his people, of not forgetting his covenant. God is a jealous God. He's jealous for the glory of his name, but he's also jealous for the completion and the perfection of his people. And he will not forget his promise. He is not man that he should repent. 
He, he is not like man that he should change his mind. He will complete his covenant that he has promised to his people. And yet here there is indictment for those who do not repent, those who do not turn. The first three verses, it's an indictment against the breaking of the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself any idol, any graven image. In the second section, four through eight, it's an indictment against the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And then he asks two rhetorical questions in 9 through 11 and then on 12 and 14. He asks them about their vulnerability, about their dependence upon the political military machine that they have created. But he also points out to them by questions the stupidity of their stubborn refusal to return and repent. Now remember when he is speaking of Ephraim here, he is speaking of the entire northern kingdom, I believe. I don't believe it's just Ephraim as the, as the tribe. And yet there is that part here as well. Ephraim in verse 1 is the strong man, the one who God ordained to be stronger than his brother and strong among the tribe, the northern tribes. And yet we, we don't see Judah here. And I take that to mean that these pronouncements of these who disappear and do not return, as we see the language, speaks to those of the northern kingdom who go off into exile and do not return as a tribe, as a nation of the northern kingdom. Yes, there is that remnant, but overall they do not return. And we see the indictments against them. And again, it is very graphic and very explicit. And we see Hosea at his metaphorical best, I think. Similes and metaphors abounding in here. And many are self-explanatory, and yet they add and add and add to bring us the picture to where Hosea and God bring us in the climax of this chapter. In verses 1 through 3, we see the dignity of Ephraim, again, perhaps just the tribe here, but even as the nation, vanishing. He says, when Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. There's a dignity to Ephraim here. When, when he spoke, it's the old E.F. Hutton line, right? When Ephraim spoke, people listened. And there was an honor, and there was a respect, and there was a, a dignity to him. He exalted himself in Israel, probably here because the but does not come until the second or the third part of that verse. It's probably a good exaltation. He, he took his rightful place among the nations as God set him up to be strong, to be the place of the, the captains and the princes and the palaces. All were in awe of him, but... There's always that but here with Ephraim. But through the bales. He, he offended by the bales. He did wrong and he died. He's shifted his attention from God. And, and we ask the question, you know, why do people, some people don't rejoice in what God has given? Well, here's one of the reasons why we need to be careful. Because he was exalted by God. God gave him that position and yet... What did he do with it? He almost immediately, upon 
coming out of Egypt and into the wilderness and being set up in this position by God turn to idols. And the Baals are the symbol of his wrongdoing and his worship. And they put in much effort and much expense, as we see in verse 2. Now they sin more and more. There is something about sin, isn't there? When we sin, it's as if it is yanking us downhill. People call, talk about the slippery slope. Well, sin is, is a dangerous slope. It's almost as if we, when, when we sin, it's like that opens up the way for more and more sin, does it not? It's as if someone, when you get a new jacket, for example, when it's brand new and you're real proud of it, you do everything you can to keep it from getting soiled. You, you hang it up just right and you launder it just right and, and you don't you know, wear it when you're going out to certain places because you don't want it soiled. But after that first stain or that first thread starts to pull or that first button gets a little bit loose, it's as if we kind of relax and we don't take care of it as well. We don't mind it as well. And we get more and more stains and pulls and tears. And then we're wearing a jacket that is full of holes. It's as if we lose our care over the one sin that begins, begets other sins. Watch. Watch. Jesus says, watch and pray that you do not fall into temptation. And they sinned more and more. And they poured themselves into this. They make for themselves these molten images. They didn't buy them. What did they do? It says they made them from their silver. It's not that they were made of silver. They gave of their income. Their coin went into buying the gold that they would melt to make these golden calves and these images. And perhaps, as we see in the book of Acts, there were those craftsmen who made the little ones that you could take home with you and have an image at your house. And all of them the work of craftsmen. Craftsmen made things that they declared God. They're one that they would worship and they say of them, and it's hard to understand exactly what, but it's as if they cried out to those who were not the craftsmen, the ones who would go to celebrate and worship there, kiss the calves, show your allegiance, show your adoration. That's what it means, does it not? Kiss the calves is to show that that is the one to whom you have given your allegiance. And so their sin of misrepresenting God by making these images, their sin of leading the nation into paganism is what's plaguing them here. He offended and he died, it says. He loses his reputation. He, they are not dying here physically, but they, it is as if they have become vile. They've become unproductive. They, they've died in the sense that God has withdrawn his protection from them. And isn't that what Jesus says when that great day comes? 
when He comes again in glory and He comes to judge the quick and the dead. And He says in Matthew 24, that odd verse, but I think it applies here, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. It's, it's not speaking of Jesus, it's speaking of the people who are dead and those who he has withdrawn himself from in order to take his people with him. And what it will happen. It says, therefore, they will be like the morning cloud. They're going to vanish. They're going to disappear. You, you, can, you can see these three similes here. The morning cloud. It, it promises a lot, but it doesn't deliver anything. It's, it's worthless. It, it it's, it's just vanishes out of sight without any good coming of it. The dew that soon disappears. The chaff. The useless stuff. The, the kernel is left, but the chaff is blown away. He says that's what these people will be like, and they'll be like smoke from a chimney. Yes, that smoke does dissipate, but before it dissipates, it's very offensive. If it fills your house with smoke before it goes up the chimney, it's offensive, and that's how he sees these people. There's empty promises. There's worthlessness. There's a vanishing. And Derek Kidner says that Hosea presses home the point when he says, quote, a nation is no more than its morals and its character. That the nation is no more than what it is like in its character and the way it conducts itself and the morality that it holds. And what are they like? They're like the morning cloud and the dew, the worthless chaff, the smoke from the chimney. The scriptures exhort us, fear God in Psalm 2, fear God, kiss the Son, do homage to the Son lest he become angry and perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. To whom is your allegiance? To whom do you give adoration? To whom, whom do you exalt? Kiss the Son. That kissing, that symbol, that act of showing must be on him and him alone. They kiss the calf. We are instructed, kiss the son. In chapter, verse 4, we see the divinity of God devouring Ephraim was cared for by God. We hear the strains of a few chapters of Hosea before. I was like a father to them. I, I, I taught them to walk. Here we see that same kind of thing. I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt. I was the one who brought you out. You, you were not to know, he says. You were not to know any God except me. And there was no Savior besides me. See, see there's, there's two things that he's pointing to here. There, there's the relationship, and then there's the one that you look to for your protection. He, he, he says that you were to know me. That, that, that's why I brought you out. That's why I, I singled you out and I brought you into the wilderness alone, that you would know me above any God, above anything, and as no Savior besides me. I cared for you in the wilderness, he says. There's the feeding, there's the caring. I, I brought you into a, a pasture. 
and, and I, I fed you, and you became satisfied, and that's where you started down that slippery slope again. No, notice in verse 6, they had their pasture, they became satisfied. Because they were satisfied, he says, their hearts became proud, their hearts became proud, and therefore, therefore they forgot me. See how it happens? It's just quick as that. It, 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 again, sin is, is so deceptive. Sin is so, it, it's, it's like Hosea has already said, it's like that moth that's eating that coat in your closet. You're here, it's there, but it's happening. And it's, it's as if they didn't even notice it. And as I've said, God is a jealous God. He's, he's jealous for his own glory. He's jealous for his people. But don't fall into that trap, that 21st century mindset of jealousy. It, it's childishness. We're, we're not speaking of that, well, I'm jealous that you have that color car. It, God is wholly jealous. God, and one of the commentators said, it's a fiery concern. It's a passionate concern for what is rightfully his. See, God is not jealous because they're worshiping other gods. He's, he's jealous because those people are his. And his concern is they walk in him. That they walk in honor and glory of him. And he, he insists, he says, to know me. That's the first thing that he insists on, is a full personal relationship. And he insists on full loyalty. There be no Savior but me. And note that in the case of their idolatry in verses 1 through 3, that was bad enough, was it not? To cause them to vanish. And, and again, to, to emphasize that, they vanish. Remember back in chapter 6, he says, your loyalty vanishes like the dew. But in verse 3, it's they whom will vanish. It, it's the people. But now he even ups the ante even further. Because he says, now, because you've rejected my grace, because you've rejected the, the way that I brought you like a father out and I satisfied you with good things to eat and I gave you these things to, to, in order to grow you, now the punishment, the threats, instead of being a vanishing, it's, he becomes predatory. We see in verse eight, in seven and eight, like a lion, like a leopard, like a she-bear, like a wild beast. See, it's as if, yes, breaking the second commandment was bad enough, but the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, and they totally forgot him. It's... A punishment that God brings. Let me say it like this. It, it seems as in the prophets that there are two types of punishment. There are some that the, some of the commentators call the automatic punishment. For example, you, you reap what you sow. It, it, it's as if it's the law of, of, of nature. 
that if you do this, then this will happen. If you step off a cliff, gravity is going to pull you to the bottom. That's automatic punishment, but there is also a forensic punishment. There's a, there's a punishment that God calls them to account. God brings his retribution upon them, and that's what we see here. For those who have forgotten that God is God alone and he will have no other gods, there will be, they will, he will be the one. God is one and there is no other. What does he bring against them? A lion. The strength that no one can resist. The leopard. The leopard is prized for its stealth and its stalking. The terror that that should come upon them and us as we read this. A leopard lying in wait. The she-bear robbed of her cubs. You've read about that. You've read stories of pikers who, who get in between on the trail between her cubs and the bear. It's It's an attack. And he will devour like the lioness. The lioness does not eat daintily. The lioness is training her cubs. And the lioness has to rip open the carcass in order for them to eat. And that's what he's speaking of here. Speaking of ripping open their chest, their heart cavity. And I believe this is where Hosea would begin to comment. And the comments that he was going to say after verse 8 are down in 15 and 16. Because this is the only place that, that gives me the context for them. Here, again, in very graphic language, and we, don't, we won't camp on it, but it, but it is, ought to cause us to, to fear God and, and to stand and, and to take it in. Ephraim has flourished among his brothers, an east wind will come, the wind of the Lord coming up from the wilderness. Well, what we see here is that he's going back to the concept of Ephraim's dignity. E- Ephraim was strong, and, and yet, even as he was among his brothers, among the other tribes, an east wind is coming. The east wind was the dry harsh winds that just zapped energy and strength and took all of the vegetation off the land. It was a searing, devastating wind. And what does it say? God says, this is the wind of God. Uh, It'll be as if an orchard that cannot be sustained in this kind of gale force. His treasuries will be plundered. The nation will be vulnerable. And Samaria, verse 16, will be held guilty. Samaria was the capital city in Ephraim. And she has rebelled against her God, and, and they will fall by the sword. As these, if he is saying, metaphorically, it's the east wind, but what in reality is it? It's the sword. It's the sword, as we know from history of Assyria, coming to rip them open. It's almost as if we have the literal fulfillment of Hosea chapter 1. Tell them their name is Lo-Ami. You are not my people. Tell them their name is Lo-Ruhamach. She has not obtained compassion. 
Who among us knows the power of God's anger? The scriptures say, Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, let us. Let us hate sin and love God. Let us repent and make peace with God speedily. Is there anything in our hearts, is there anything in our life that I love more than God? Is there anything or anyone or any concept to which I pay more adoration and allegiance, more longing and desiring than God alone? It is a grievous sin. Know the terror of the Lord. He is not that benign man upstairs that our modern church sometimes paints him to be. He's not indifferent. He is not disinterested. He is the God, the east wind, the God of terror, the God of might. And he will come because he will have justice. God goes on in verse 9. And notice again the indictment. It is your destruction, O Israel. Israel demanded a king. He says, you are against me. You are against my help. Where now? Where, O Israel, is your king? Where is this king that you desired me to give you? Where are your helpers? Where are your princes? Where are your judges that were going to save your cities? This infrastructure that you built to, to keep yourselves safe. And I know that Israel's demands for a king were complex, and they were compounding. They, they did have some reasonable grief, uh, grievances, didn't they? Samuel was getting old, and his sons were idiots. It says of them in the scriptures, they, were, they had dishonest gain. They, they loved bribery. They perverted justice. That's what they were like. So there was something about their grievances that was reasonable. But they went on. They had this human desire. Again, 1 Samuel 8 tells us they, they went to God, or to the leaders, and they said, now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. We want to be like them. And they went even further because they walked by sight and not by faith. Why? They said that our king may go out before us and help us fight our battles. They did not want to trust God whom they could not see. They would rather trust a human king that they could see. And God says, but this is your destruction, O Israel. You are against me. You are against your help. It's almost as if in that same book of 1 Samuel, chapter 7, he, he, the metaphor is, I, I'm going to take a hammer and I'm going to smash your Ebenezer. Remember, that was the stone that Samuel put out. And what does the Ebenezer mean? The stone of help. And as if he's saying, I'm going to shatter it because you no longer look at me as your help. Your symbol of constant aid and protection. No, no, this is your destruction. And he doesn't blame himself, does he? He blames them. You've done this. You've heaped this 
blame into your own lap. You have destroyed yourself. And if we really take it to its full meaning, they are self-murderers. They have committed suicide. Spiritual suicide here. Because they have rejected the one who was their help. And God says, where now is your king? Where is your help? Where are these princes and judges that were supposed to be the ones who will drag you out of these things? We would ask ourselves that same question. Where now is my help? Do I look to the hills from whence my help will come, who is the Lord, who neither slumbers or sleeps? Or do I look to man? Is my confidence in Man, is my confidence in my government, is my confidence in myself, or is it in the king of kings, the king of heaven, the king of earth? And we might ask, would God bless them in these demands? Remember in 1 Samuel 8, he tells Samuel, he says, they're not rejecting you, Samuel, they're rejecting me from being king. That's what they want. That's why they want a human king. And God says, I gave you a king, verse 11. I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. Note, God's sovereignty in setting up kings and bringing them down again is his and his alone. He's sovereign in that. But note this also. God's, as one author put it, his exploitation. It's like he's exploiting the human institution of kings to teach, to judge, and to direct them amid this political and military chaos that they brought upon themselves. God gave it in his anger, and God took it away in his wrath. The giving and the taking belongs to the Lord, and yet he uses that, and then he uses that for their instruction, but also for ours. God gave in anger. Does he still do that? I would say beware of setting your heart on any craving, any desire, anything in which God's hand is not in it. And perhaps even further than that, is there anything you desire where you desire it more than you desire God in it? Beware when your desires are simply to satisfy your own lusts, your own cravings, or your own envies. But also beware that when God does bless you, when you do have that which you have received and you know God has given it to you in love and blessing, do you also bless him? Do you also thank him when you know that he has given it not out of anger, but to be your help and to be your care. God asks hard questions, does he not? He makes strong indictments. It is your destruction, O Israel. Look at what you've done to yourselves. Man is responsible for his sin. He goes on in chapter, or verse 12, the iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. <laughs> Again, it says, if he is saying, look, 
you're doing it again. You're doing it more and more. Your iniquity is bound up. His sin is stored up. It, it, I think it's actually could be said two ways, and you would be right, because I think it's both. Bound up or stored up, as if he is guarding and treasuring his sin and his sinful behavior. It's as if someone has taken care of their sin to put it aside and put it in a safe place, almost as if you would do an heirloom or a special treasure. And we do that with our sins, do we not? We, we coddle ourselves in our sins. We, most people, I, I've heard people tell me, well, sin is so terrible. Yes, it is terrible, but most people enjoy sinning. Get to go back over and over and over to their sins. And, and it's almost as if they're, they're kind of holding their sins, again, as like a special treasure. And it also could be taken that God is binding them up. Because God is. Because, as we'll see, their non-repentant attitude, God is keeping a record. And God is keeping a record of their sins until they are repented of. And what we have here is a picture of Israel's once very promising future coming to nothing but death. Because what we see here is the labor pains, the pains of childbirth come upon him. He is not a wise son, for it is not the time that he should delay at the opening of the womb. The focus is not on the pain. The focus is not on that birthing, but it's on the timing of the birthing. It's on, because he says, it is not the time that he should delay. The contractions are happening. And it's supposed to, the pain and the contractions are supposed to result in birth. And yet it's as if Israel is saying, I will not be born. I will not come out. It's, it's, it's on his delay. And it says he's not wise. He, he, he's foolish. He will not repent. It's as if the baby in the womb is saying, I'm not going to come out. And what does that result in? It's death. The, the child will die, and the mother will be in grave danger of her own life as well. And it's almost as if he is saying, the, the pains, the contractions are there, but you will not. You are a foolish son, Israel. You are not wise. And that is your problem. The absence of your wisdom. And they're being destroyed because they do what is harmful to them, and they will not, and they do put off that which is helpful to them. And oh, what a folly it is when we come under conviction of sin and we won't cry out to God. There are many people who are convinced of their sin, and they may even tell you that, and they may even feel bad about that, but they're not converted. It's as if they try to delay the time of their being born. Their time, as we might put it, of being born again. And yet, and yet, in the midst of all of these things, in the midst of these indictments, in the midst of these questions and these allegations that he brings against the nation of Israel and Ephraim in particular, 
What do we read? Verse 14. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? Well, there's no, and this is the controversy, there are those who say God is calling upon death and Sheol, death and Hades, to swallow them up. It's done. Here's the pronouncement. Here we go. But the Hebrew here does not have question marks. And I understand that the context says, particularly with 15 and 16 following, that the context would seem to read, God is saying, I'll have no compassion on you. Call them down, death and Hades. But I have chosen, I have chosen to interpret Scripture with Scripture. And if I'm wrong, then Paul was wrong, because Apostle Paul uses this verse in 1 Corinthians 15. And what he says, and this is how I would read it, I will ransom them from the power of Sheol. I will redeem them from death. Here, it's, it's as if we go back to chapter 11. Oh, Israel, how can I give you up? Oh, Ephraim, how can I turn you over? This is the heart of God. It, the pronouncements are here. You, yes, you brought destruction upon you. Yes, you have delayed your repentance, and I wish that you would. But I cannot give you over to the power of death and the power of hell. The last enemy will be conquered, God says. God will do for them what no king, no judge, no prince on earth could do. I will ransom them. I will redeem them. Jesus Christ says, or it said of him, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to pay that price. Notice the contrast between Israel cherishing and bounding up their sin as an heirloom and God giving of himself to conquer sin and death and Hades for them. And when he says, I will have no compassion or compassion is hidden from my sight, it's not compassion, no compassion on the victims of sin, but on the tyrants that would take them to the grave. This is the victory cry. This is the beginning, the, the trumpet sound for the crescendo of chapter 14. And I think if it wasn't here, we would be so shocked by, by chapter 14, we wouldn't be prepared for it. And yet it is here. And what do we know on that great day, at the end of days, what will happen Revelation tells us, and Hades and death were thrown into the lake of fire. It will be done because God is going to do it. And God has done it. He's defeated death and Hades. They're, they don't come as marauders and tyrants. Here we picture them as being mocked by God. They're, they're, they're coming as, as vanquished foes, mocked already. Oh, death, where are your thorns? Oh, Hades, where is your sting? They have no power over my people because of what I will do. It's looking forward to that great day of Christ and the redemption and the ransom. And as we will see, perhaps as we continue on in Hebrews, getting over to chapter 2, 
And what did Christ do? He came, he took on flesh and blood, and he defeated, as he says in Hebrews, him who had the power of death, that is, Satan. Here's the gospel. Here's the glorious good news. And what we see is saints will die, but they will die a bodily death only. And Paul says, the corruptible will put on the incorruptible. The mortal will put on the immortality. It's as if that when we die, we will not be like those in Israel that did not repent. Who, who were withdrawn from the protection of God. No, when we die, our bodies will be fitting. It's, it's, as one commentator says, like we go to the fitting room and we're being fitted with our glorious new resurrection body that we will have on that great day when he comes again. And all the saints know this, but it's worth repeating that no person who has been given to Christ will perish, but he will bring them all home. There is only one thing I can think to say and to read to finish up. To read the words of the Apostle Paul, by the power of the Holy Spirit he wrote, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, these these things are truly heavy duty. That you would give us strength, that you would give us energy that you would give us desire to look into these things to meditate upon these great and glorious things of our Lord Jesus Christ and yet to, as we look back in the Old Testament as we try to grapple with these things and the, the nation of Israel the, the people of Ephraim Father help us to understand help us to get a better appreciation for what these things mean and Father bring us to that place where we love you, but we hate our sin. That we love you more than anything in this world and that we walk with you in that, that holy terror, that holy fear that only you can instill in us that we would respect you and honor you and yet we would be in awe of you and yet we would not shrink back at your coming knowing that you have led us as a father You have given us your Son to redeem us, and you guide us by the Holy Spirit. Father, may we not shrink back, but may this give us strength and comfort and energy and confidence to walk ahead. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please rise for the benediction from 1 Corinthians 15. After those great words, Paul says, Therefore... Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord.